The scripture reading today is from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 20 through chapter 4, verse 1. So again, Philippians 3:20 through 4, 1. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, Lord, we uh, ask your blessing on this time. Speak to our hearts. Help me to speak what's true and right. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, many people may be uh, familiar with this book, Heaven is for Real. It came out that long ago. It was also made into a movie. Um, it's basically the story of, if you don't know, it's the story of a three-year-old boy, uh, Colin Burpo, true story, who uh, parents didn't know, but he had a ruptured appendix. And by the time they got him to the hospital, it looked like he wasn't going to make it. And he went in for surgery. And he actually amazingly made it out of surgery and lived. And the amazing thing was is it was, I'm not sure how long later, uh, that he began to tell his parents about things he saw when that happened. And he said he saw these, you know, he actually saw Jesus. And he saw these heavenly visions. And, uh, you know, you wonder what this little three-year-old say. But then he began to share stuff that they thought there's no way of a little boy could ever know these things. He said he saw both of his parents in separate rooms praying during his surgery. And then probably one of the more shocking things is he saw um, who Poppy, his grandfather, but when they showed him a picture of his grandfather, the old man, they said, no, I didn't see him. But then they sometime later found a young picture of him in his prime, and he said, yeah, that was the man I ran into. And he'd never even seen the picture before. And then probably most shocking of all is he said, um, he told his mom, I go, you didn't tell me I had another sister. And they're like, what are you talking about? And uh, it turns out she had lost a child, um, had a miscarriage. And they didn't even know if it was a boy or girl, and he ran into this girl who claimed to be that in heaven. And, uh, and if you, you can see interviews of them, that's, you know, uh, the dad's a pastor, and he's now, you know, probably like, a teenager, and he tells these stories, and it was made a movie into it, and you think, um, you know, is it, is it true? I mean, he's incredibly cynical about these stories or not. Uh, I mean, John MacArthur, who's a, you know, head of master's seminary and a Bible teacher, goes, oh, it's obviously a sham, not to mention what atheists think about it. And I don't know, you know, I, I think, I mean, I, I don't know what, to, you know, who knows? I don't know if it's true or not. Um, they do seem pretty legitimate as they say it, but I said whether it's true or not, I mean, probably basing your theology of heaven on the vision of a three-year-old is probably not a great idea anyway. Um, but yet it is pretty compelling. But regardless of what you believe about the, his story, the Bible clearly states that there is a heaven. And uh, not only that there is one, but that it's um, supposed to impact us uh, to believe in it. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is, uh, you know, heaven. Is this something uh, that's even reasonable to believe in? Is that kind of like this hopeful thinking way out there? Because uh, the Bible would say, not only, 
not only the Bible, I would say even logically speaking, I actually think it's not only possible to believe in heaven and not an airy-fairy thing to believe. I would venture, I actually think it's an incredibly reasonable thing, dare I say even scientific thing, to believe in. A bunch of scientists here. Ooh. <laughs> They're probably going to go, that is not scientific at all. You don't know what you're talking about, which is true. Um, uh, and, but the second question is, not only is it okay to believe that, but how should it impact us today? Because the Bible would say it should impact us dramatically. So basically, is it reasonable to believe in heaven? And secondly, if so, how should it impact us how we live? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're kind of going back to Philippians. And I've kind of looked at this serious theology thing because we're not going to do so much a, 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 a thing out of the text. We're going to go back to the passage we looked at in late August, in the end of Philippians 3. And we began this discussion on heaven and our transformation at that point, but we want to expand that a little bit and talk about it. I think it's worth paying a little more attention to it. We are hoping to finish Philippians by Advent. We are people of faith. And uh, uh, if you remember where we are in this book, um, you know, Paul in, the, in chapter 3 has had this dramatic thing where he says all these accomplishments of his life, he counts his loss. He is single-minded in pursuit of knowing Christ and spending his life, you know, like almost the analogy of a race of setting everything behind him and straining forward to the upward prize, upward calling, the prize of knowing Christ Jesus. And then he kind of says, but many people have began to go astray from that. But then he turns back to them and says, but you guys know our citizenship is in heaven and we wait a savior from there. Have your mind upon that. If you remember, again, just to some words, even the word of citizenship. Remember, Philippi is like a little mini Rome. And the idea of a citizen is very significant. You know, to be a Roman citizen, you know, is something you are ever present of for those and had all these privileges and everything else. But your citizenship is in heaven. Even language like the Lord and Savior, right, of Jesus Christ. This is the language that they use for Caesar. He was Lord. He was Savior of the world, Caesar was, you know, creating the Roman Empire. You're thinking some savior of a world. You could call him a conqueror, but no, no, we're savior, not a conqueror of the world, you know, from their standpoint. But he's saying specifically, no, your Lord and savior is in heaven, and that is where your citizenship is. And then, uh, and he says, in heaven, he goes, and we eagerly await him to come from heaven there. And so, it, therefore, he says later on, stand firm. Meaning, that belief and you remembering what you're a citizen of should drastically affect what you do right now. So, I want to talk a little bit more today about, because we talked a lot about that passage in the context last time, and it's in August if you want to go back to it. But when we talk about heaven, is that really a reasonable thing to think and to believe and to base your life on? Or is it just sort of happy thinking, you know, because you need it? Um, so what is heaven off the bat? Let's just start, let's start there. So heaven is not um, a place where there's little chubby uh, angels with wings playing harps, you know, in some little marshmallow land. That is not heaven, all right? Uh, it's not a, at all a biblical view of heaven. Um, uh, actually, if you want like a nice little study on it, um, for those, folks, I don't know if people know the Bible Project. 
It is an amazing, they've made all these videos, you know, about like five minute videos on some real, on the books of the Bible, on some really serious, complex theological stuff. It's incredibly well done. And illustrate if you want like even family devotion kind of stuff. It's really great stuff. Um, so I'm just grabbing one of their images here. But um, heaven and earth, if you understand heaven, heaven is essentially the realm of God, if you want to call it that. The, re- the place where God is in authority, where, you know, all knees are bowed to him. That is where the kingdom, and kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, used almost in cha- interchangeably. And in Eden, for instance, heaven and earth essentially were one place. There was no separation between them. You know, we lived, we being people of the earth, lived with God and fellowship God, and it was, everything was under the lordship of, of God. And then when man broke from that and said, no, I'm going to do it my way, in a sense, all of creation broke and heaven and earth, in a sense, ripped apart and it no longer became the place of it. And earth became the place of, of, of suffering, of corruption, of evil, of, all, of sin that separated from it. And essentially the story of the Bible is how God rejoins heaven and earth together. You know, that once again, earth, you know, we eagerly await a savior from heaven who will come and set all things subject to him, essentially making heaven like earth. And uh, currently now we're separate, but there is um, overlap, right? There's overlap where heaven touches earth. You know, um, think when Jesus came down, right? He, was, he came down and he was overlap, right? Because he, he was earth, he was flesh, he was here. And remember, he would say the kingdom of God is at hand. And he would say in that moment, you know, even the authority of heaven's happening, your sins are forgiven. He would heal people, almost taking the veil back on heaven. Look, look there, the, the blind see, the lame walk. You know, the dead are raised. And heaven was, essentially was touching earth. And furthermore, every place someone then bows to Jesus. Like when I bow to Jesus right now, I say, Jesus, you are Lord. Heaven touches earth. When we gather in worship and praise and connection and prayer to God, heaven is touching earth. When we are serving him and doing it. And so um, ultimately, though, we're looking for that point where heaven completely comes. And no longer is that rebellion and the brokenness and the death and all that stuff is set aside and heaven and earth are in a sense united. So heaven, right, as he says that he'll bring all things under his control. So the question I have is, is that a, is that a reasonable thing to believe? To think that, that there is this heaven out there that is God's realm and it is coming and it's going to come and come over our, our realm now. And, uh, and you're supposed to now live your life in light of that. Well, I would argue that not only is it reasonable, it's actually in some ways an incredibly reasonable thing to believe. And the way I want to kind of think about it in a scientific way is to say, look at the data of our humanity, the data of how we act, the data of the things we long. And this can be really complex. I'm going to hit just on a few items. If you remember before, I actually hit on this argument in August using Seneca's quote. He says, you, you act like mortals in all you fear uh, and like immortals in all you desire. I mean, there's something about your desires inside are eternal. You know, although you're fearful like you're in this world like mortals. And we talked about what are some of these immortal desires we have or longings we have. And just then, I mean, we talked about you know, some of the most basic stuff like our desire that our, our bodies wouldn't break down. You know, because you know, there it talks about our bodies being transformed. Who here likes the idea that our, 
our bodies are breaking down. You know, we feel we long that they wouldn't. Or even people who, you know, you know not something that everyone ages, this perfection, all of our bodies are messed up to various extents, some to large extents, even some from birth or some mid-thing, but all of us want our bodies to somehow work, and it feels somehow wrong that they work like this. And we, we wish it wasn't this way. And, and even people who don't believe in God say, why would people be like this if, if God was here? But what that does is that actually tells you that inside they have a longing for some sort of body that they've never seen before. Some sort of existence that we don't live in. And that's one of these key ideas. We long for things we've never seen or experienced before. Why do we do that? What explains that data of human behavior? And we talked also even about our need for meaning and purpose. You know, why do we need meaning and purpose? If this is all there is, why not just get food and shelter and be totally content? Yet no one is content with that. And if we don't have some kind of reason we're doing something, we go into depression or into despair. Why do we need meaning and purpose? And I want to talk about, and I call it the um, heaven hypothesis. Meaning, what explains this data of human longing? And I'm going to argue that actually, if you put in the idea that there is a heaven, that there is this place of God's realm, it actually explains all of our human longings. Does it prove it? But it is a, I think it explains it in an incredibly uh, persuasive way. Any kind of theory. What explains the data? You go, man, this explains the data incredibly well. What do I mean? So we talk about, you know, I talk about your body, meaning and purpose. Let's go a different direction today. What about our call, need for justice? I mean, we long that the world be just. You know, we, we, we see somebody like Hitler who did all these horrible things, and then before they could arrest him, he killed himself. Who doesn't feel like, how did he get away? He got away with it. He somehow, he did all these horrible things, and somehow he was able to escape the consequences of it. And everything inside of us goes, he should not be able to escape it. No one should be able to escape it. They should, no one should get away with what the horrors they've done. And, and even... But even if he did get arrested, what would we have been able to do? What, he, he stands trial and some people say things or he argues otherwise and we have to prove that somehow he did these things and there'd be some sort of consequences that would seem incredibly insufficient to anyone who experienced them? You sit there and see the justice, whatever we can execute here, doesn't even come to a glimpse of what our inner being is crying out for. Our inner being says no one should get away with everything. There was nothing that should be uh, done behind secret, any kind of oppression or lie or horrors done, should be made manifest and bear consequences for that. We long for that. We've never seen it. No one has. You, you come before a judge in a court of law and you long that there's a judge who can see rightly, who could judge truly, that no evidence is hidden that everything is made manifest and they see it and he is wise and he is all-knowing. And when he says, this is what's true, everyone walks away satisfied. You're not, you're not upset that the judgment went the other way. You just want to know what's true and what's right. We long for that. And yet we never, ever walk away from a court system thinking, did everything really come out? Was everything really true? Everything was shaded, a little different. Things weren't said. They weren't spoken. The person didn't understand what was going on. But we long for something else. Why do we long for something that's never existed? We dream of something none of us have ever lived in. Why? It doesn't mean, you know, um, it doesn't mean we don't work towards it. It doesn't mean there's not glimpses of it. 
But overall, let's face it, you never get it. Or let's talk about a whole nine. That's justice. What about the strange? I was thinking, and there's actually, you can talk about so many different realms like this. I'm just talking about a few of these longings. What about the strange longing we have to connect to people? Do you ever think how complex it is, all the different thoughts we have in our mind, all these emotions, all these feelings? And don't you just want someone else to understand it? Can someone else, you know, understand what's happening in here? And every time you try to speak, you never fully explain what's really going on. The person can only partially understand it. And some people are better and worse at verbally expressing what's going on. And other people are better and worse at actually listening at what's going on. But it's always so incomplete, and you long that more could be exposed. Like somebody like me, like I'm, um, I, I err to the side of too many words, right? You know, because I'm rushing to try to get this thing here out here, and it, it works great when you try to discipline your kids. You know, you know, Nikki has to often say too many words. You know, but I'm like, it's all here. You know, can't you see what's this? And they're thinking, and they're on the other side thinking. He, why can't he understand what I saw and experienced? But we're all kind of blocked off like this. It's like we have all this stuff happening here, and we can't actually share it or say it. Isn't that crazy? We long that other people would understand and see, and we'd somehow be connected in a way to other people that we're not. Even think about how your brain works. Isn't it just remarkable? There's all this stuff going on in here. It seems like the most incredible, complex thing ever, and yet we all kind of feel like it doesn't quite work right. Like it gets twisted, right? All, what's all this anxiety, fear? <laughs> what's all these weird things? What's all like this anger? There's all these other weird thoughts going in there. It's as if we have this amazing thing which doesn't quite work right. Close sometimes. Why is that? Why do we all kind of imagine it would work in a different way? and work in a better way, and we connect when we couldn't. It's as if now that we're somehow strangely separated from one another and incapable of connecting in a way we were meant to. And how many times do you see people get more and more lonely, more and more separated as a result? Why is that? What explains that data of human existence? What about love, Right? Love's an interesting thing. Why do we need love? Yeah. I was, um, I was, uh, <laughs> this is a ridiculous example, but I just heard him in an interview the other day. Um, you guys know Dennis Rodman? Yeah, if you don't know him, don't look him up. It's not worth it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for those who do, you know, Rodman was like, one of these guys, you'd think, man, this guy does not care what anyone thinks about himself. You know, he just marches to his own drum. He's just kind of like, he is out there on his own. Just a re- rebellious figure in some ways. But it was funny, in an interview at the time, he was talking about his experience being on the bowls with Michael Jordan. He's like, you know, I, I don't care about the fame or the money. I, and he actually said, he goes, I, I just wanted to be loved. You know, I, when, you, when you pull it all down, you just want to be loved by others. You just want to be understood and cared for. And isn't that true? Isn't the, the richest person in the world with the most fame, and you know, you don't have to know them actually, but you know if there's no one who loves them and no one they can love, you know they feel empty, don't you? And they would probably say that. Why do we need that? Why is that our deepest longing? What's the functionality of that? What's the utilitarian value of that? What explains that we behave like that? So when I talk about heaven 
and the heaven hypothesis is we have all these behaviors and all these longings, if that's the data. If you say heaven exists, it actually explains why we have all those longings, doesn't it? It explains why we're like a fish that somehow dreams of flying, yet he's never flown. He's never lived outside of water. We dream of a world outside of water. We dream of an existence living in a different way. And why is that? Why do we have that? Now, some people might say, you know, well, that's, that's a result of um, natural selection and, uh, you know, um, survival of the fittest. And you're, you're, that's a fine theory. You can have that theory. I'm not, I don't have that much faith. You know, I think that's, I think that's a, a, a difficult argument to make. But it's a theory. They're competing theories. Or I, uh, Carl Jung... Um, you know, was one of the first great sort of psychoanalytic theorists, you know, after Freud and other ones. And their great discovery, and actually Jung, where Jung was unique, is he was saying, I can come up with empirical evidence for the existence of the subconscious. That's why they were flocking to him, you know. They are saying, because he goes, I, I, I interview people, I collect data, and I'm telling you the subconscious exists. Right now, you wouldn't even, no one would doubt that. But at that point, it was very much doubted. But then when he interviewed all these people from different cultures and different times, he actually found that they had all the same kind of like dreams and deep longings and deep desires. The same mythologies, the longing for God, longing for all these different longings. And he said, why, why do they have that? And his theory was this idea of the collective unconscious. That somehow among all humans, there's some giant collective unconscious. That everybody's, which was basically like a pool, everybody's experience who's ever lived somehow fell into this collective unconscious which all of us draw from. Freud thought it was ridiculous. You know, Freud did not buy it whatsoever. I mean, Freud, well, Freud's collective unconscious was mom. You know, that's the essence of our collective unconscious, our mother. Um, that's, That's not a really accurate description of Freudian theory. But um, in some ways, you know, you could go, gosh, that's, but he saw that this was true. You know, what really explains all this data? And we didn't even, I only talked on pieces of it. You could, you could talk about morality. You could talk about um, worship, spiritual longings. You know, but the bottom line is the theory of heaven does incredible amounts to explain all these longings. You know, why do I have a longing you know, for a, a you know, body that doesn't break down? Why do I have a longing for justice? Why do I have a longing to connect, to love, to this meaning for meaning and purpose? All these human behaviors would be explained if that's actually how we're hardwired. That's what we were made to be. That somehow we're broken from that and we don't actually experience what we're made to, but we live in this hope that one day, once again, we will have that. Because it's not an issue of believing it. The atheist has all these same longings, Right? So does that prove it? No. It just means um, I kind of like what C.S. Lewis said about it. If I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so I actually think when we talk about uh, our faith or this ultimate heaven, I think it, does an inc- it has incredible explanatory power. You know, why do I behave and want the things I do? So, pr- 
probably a solid half of the people here were just like, is he done yet? Because um, that doesn't interest you at all. You're like, yeah, yeah, I believe in heaven. I don't care, you know? And so now let's go to the people who actually have some practical purpose in their life and mind candy is not enough. Mind candy is awfully happy. I can sit in a little room and just go, oh, this is so interesting, and ignore actual humans, which is not heavenly at all. It's more of my broken self. So does it matter if I believe in heaven? Does this actually matter? Well, the short answer is yes. Tremendously so. Tremendously so. Um, You know, even as it says um, in our passage, in light of this, therefore stand firm. This is really a follow-up from what Samuel was preaching last week, isn't it? You know, knowing the future directly impacts our present. If you know you are being, you know, laid off in four months, you take action today. You know, you, knowing the future tremendously impacts the present. Knowing that this is where we're going to be taken has incredible impact on us today. Waiting for that Savior. As he would say there, waiting for that Savior, you know, it impacts how you're both taking, um, taking action, but it also has incredible thing on how you react to the world as well. You know, kind of looking from... Uh, Philippians 3, the idea of standing firm, our reactions, but pressing on our actions. So let's talk about some of the reactions and actions that I think impact us. When we talk about initially um, reactions, um, how, when, when the brokenness of this world impacts you, you see it differently. You expect different things of it. You know, I, I was, it's been a really profound experiencing, uh, experience going to the hospital and seeing Jim Amnot. And um, a number of times sitting by him, and he's just going in for surgery, going, I'm okay if I don't come out of this. That's not a pipe dream. It's a real, real possibility. And, uh, and he has such incredible peace about it. It's kind of phenomenal. No one likes the suffering and the pain and the hardship. That's the stuff you hate. But... He is at absolute rest, you know, knowing that you know, death's a door. And, I, and when, the, when the Lord calls, calls me through that door, I walk through that door, and it will be a joy. But until that time, you know, when he has me here, then we persevere and we struggle and we march on for whatever God has for us in this moment. It radically changed the way you impact, you know, the way you go through those things. And it's not, again, just a pipe dream kind of stuff. There's a, a confidence. And... Um, and I th- when I think about your reactions, too, it's like, how do you deal with, um, you know, injustices now? You know, you have an expectation. That th- th- this is not the place where you get complete justice. This is not the place we ever fully understood. It doesn't happen here. You work to be understood. You, you work for justice, but it's only so much you're going to get. And, you know, what, what's your reaction when you, if you think that somehow you, this should be the place where you're fully understood, well, what's true is fully made manifest, that everyone really understands what you're talking about, what really happened? You're almost desperate about it, aren't you? You know, you, if it's, if it's a, a court decision or if it's a, uh, being fired or if it's a friend who's just turned his back on you and you're just like almost this desperate thing, if they could just understand, if you could know what's going on, you know, that's just wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. And you're filled with all of this. That's beyond what you're hoping for, right? It's because you have a false expectation. And I've seen a lot of people, we probably all know people, who have made some really bad decisions in that desperation. 
that somehow that's wrong and then they did something more wrong. And that's even not even action, right? What about the stuff that happens inside? Have you ever seen the way that whirl happens in your mind? That wants what's true, wants people to understand, wants what's wrong to somehow stop and it whirls and it whirls and it whirls in your mind? And you can't get it to stop? Gosh, I remember some people I've spoken to, you know, have these terrible divorces and they can't get it looped. They can't stop the loop. And what does it cause? Bitterness. Separation from others. Lack of hope. I mean, it, it devolves you. And heaven, you know, the reaction is, I'm able to, you know, we're supposed to be able to take these things and know that we're not going to have justice in this world. And give it to God, knowing all things, Lord, you see what's happening. You know what's going on. All will answer to you. I will not be able to get that justice here, and I release it to you. Knowing I will never get it here. I mean, it was very, I talk about it, but it's like a discipline. I mean, I don't like to talk about the lawsuit stuff, but, you know, it was something being, like, publicly slandered. And just lies being said, written about, submitted, published, and going, and being powerless to do a darn thing about it. And it was actually so powerful realizing, Lord, it actually doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter what's written. You know, know, we try for what's true here, but Lord, lift it in your hands, and it's like a burden off your shoulders. You can release it. You know, Uh, release the fears from it. But that's what it gives gives you. You can react to these things because you don't expect it. You know, you you don't have to have people understand you. It might be as small as I don't have to have my children understand me. I have to have my wife understand me. I try to. I, don't, I, can, I can endure these things. But it also doesn't just impact... Uh, oh, I was going to say, I think what God does is he just doesn't ask you also to mentally just power it out and react properly. I actually think he kind of gives us glimpses of heaven, doesn't he? In the midst of it. I was thinking like, you know, in the midst of a broken world, a difficulty and a struggle, you suddenly look up and you see this incredible sunrise. And it's just like, remember... Remember the true eternity stuff, all this stuff. Look, look up. It might be you see a, you suddenly have this loving, this, this nurse who just understood and came by, and, or a doctor who came by, and you had a little touch of that healing right now. Or even just a little touch of the comfort of some of their human understanding you, what you're going through. And you're just like, wow, that was so amazing. Remember um, Mark Shamleon's wife was just saying the craziest thing when she was so terrified and there's so much pain going to the hospital there was like a little thing that said, um, claimed by Jesus. And obviously a, one of the hotel clean person I put there, and her name, his name was Jesus. But, you know, she saw that was like this little amazing glimpse, claimed by Jesus. Yes, you're here, Lord, you know. <laughs> you know, and it only means something to her, you know. But she just warms the heart. I think God does a lot of weird things like that, you know. Um, you know, maybe it's listening to a harmony. I mean, I think sometimes a beautiful harmony or some music just feels like a little glimpse of heaven. And you almost like are able to leave the brokenness and the horror of this. Sometimes it's just a hug at the right time, isn't it? Some little word of comfort, some little provision made for you. And the idea is that God actually wants us to live in that overlap. Live with the joy of heaven, joy of it, not just enduring all this different stuff. Because I've sent all these glimpses with you, and actually heaven can touch earth through you. 
And you can actually live in the midst of this with hope, with strength. You can be one of my people in the midst of this brokenness, even bringing hope to others. That's what I've called you to do. And I think that's where we kind of transition to this idea of actions. It's not just how we react. It moves us. You know, we live in that overlap, and we are his people in the midst of this world. We are the overlap, or we can be. You know, when you are trying to work for justice, work against oppression, when you're going uh, and coming alongside your neighbors, had such a hard time, and you're just caring for them because they're worth it in God's sight. You, know, you become this bringer of heaven, and heaven becomes like this, this light in which you're working towards. That helps me understand where I'm trying to go and what I'm trying to do. You know, that, that is, he is my king, and he's who I walk and I serve in this world. And so it affects everything we do. It affects how we treat people. It affects um, how we live our lives. It affects how we prioritize our life. Everything. And uh, I, lo- I love this one saying. Someone said, and one reason you do that also is you don't want heaven to be culture shock. Yeah. I love that line. I've been thinking about it a lot. You know, there's, you know, we live in that culture now. You know, you are supposed to have a heavenly culture in your family in your workplaces, in your lives, in the midst of this world. You know, you are the overlap, if that makes sense. So, in conclusion, does heaven matter? I think in so many ways, I think it does. You know, it, it makes sense of why we are the way we are. So many of your frustrations, some of these expectations of people's behavior, your struggle, your fears, your anxieties, if you think about it, it makes sense because you're hardwired for something else. And that longing's okay. That longing's something true, even though you can't have it now. You know, and it makes sense of it. And take hold of that promise because it will radically change how you react to everything in your life. You can have a hope and a sense of perseverance amidst all circumstances. And it should, too, drive you in that race to lay aside the things, to count all that other stuff as nothing as you strain forward for that upward calling in Christ Jesus. And it's as we prayed earlier, wasn't it? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 